The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 261 of The Real Food Real, we share with you part three of how to prepare for your upcoming season and the key blood tests you need. We explore thyroid health via a complete thyroid panel, including TSH, free T4, free T3, and thyroid antibodies. You will learn the challenges with modern thyroid testing and why TSH is simply not enough to examine your thyroid health. We discuss the key nutrients, foods, and lifestyle strategies for optimal health, the influence of stress, what it means to have elevated thyroid antibodies, the roles of gluten, sugar, gut healing, and so much more. Hi. So you guys may have been tracking us over the last few months. Steph and I have done just this mini series on preparing for your season. We've done part one, part two, where we looked at micronutrient status. We looked at liver function. We looked at immune, immune markers. And today we're going to go into what's quite a meaty area. So it sort of warrants its own episode, but we're going to have a look at the thyroid. So we'll look at thyroid hormones, thyroid function, thyroid antibodies, and hopefully leave you with a really great understanding of just what the thyroid is, what it does, and what can go wrong with it by the end of this discussion. So Steph, I hope you would agree with me that it is an area that warrants its own episode because there's quite a lot to go into around just the, the thyroid, isn't there? Yeah, totally. It's a huge area and definitely one we look at in very close detail at the natural nutritionist because when we do go back to sort of what a more Western model is of investigating the thyroid, um, 
nearly always TSH is measured. Now, this stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. It's actually a pituitary hormone in the brain. So it's actually not even looking at the thyroid. So not dissimilar to what we were talking about in part two, how LFT, liver function test, is not looking at the function. Like So you know, we've got to unpack some of the termi- terminology used. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to start with TSH because nearly everyone listening has probably had their TSH testing. Um, number one is it's definitely not that holistic view of the whole thyroid and two the reference range for tsh is one of the ones that i have the most problem with because it's so wide so let's unpack both of those topics to start well um you're right like it is it is wide similar to that discussion we were having around b12 for example you know where we said that sort of reference range was quite quite loosey-goosey and the same for TSH. So if you looked at a reference panel given to us by a lab, you know, that reference range for TSH might be anywhere between 0.4 to 3.5. Some labs I see it go up as high as 4.5 there in the acceptable range. But you and I in clinic, like, you know, we're working with a much finer range. So ideally we're looking for between 0.5 and 2.5 or, you know, ideally between 0.5 and 5. And the reason this is important is because from a, from a testing perspective, like Medicare and most, like most medical professionals wouldn't warrant any further testing on the thyroid if that TSH, that thyroid stimulating hormone, sits within that wide reference range. But both you and I know that that thyroid stimulating hormone, which is not even produced by the thyroid, is not always an accurate assessment of what is actually going on at the level of the thyroid. So while someone might be presenting with all of these typical symptoms of thyroid challenge, if you speak to a doctor who's purely looking at that reference range, then they completely turned a blind eye to the thyroid based on just that very wide TSH range. Yeah, and it's a conversation I have nearly every week in clinic because typically if you're going to see a doctor for a symptom like you know, low energy or low libido, or maybe it's your hair that's falling out, or maybe it's some fat loss resistance. You know, very typically the thyroid will be looked at, but only TSH is tested. And then the conversation goes as far as your thyroid is fine, you know, look Mm. elsewhere kind of thing. (laughs) And that's really an issue because yes, we need this pituitary gland messenger to tell the thyroid to start making thyroid hormones. That's integral, don't get me wrong, but it's just a small part of the picture. So we want that 0.5 to 2.5. Anything um, higher than 2.5 is like a subclinical scenario of hypothyroidism, and that's where we can definitely be getting symptoms, you know. And for me personally, if I can start with a full thyroid panel, absolutely I will. But if a a client is coming to me or yourself only with a TSH that's above even two, then depending on the symptoms and the whole picture, then yeah, some red flags might be going off around, um, let's go deeper, let's test further. 
Mm, yeah, precisely. And, you know, for people that sort of like to get a bit of visual of what's going on with the thyroid and TSH, as you said, thyroid stimulating hormone is that pituitary hormone, which is stimulating the thyroid gland to do its job to release its own hormones. I often think of TSH as being like the mother trying to wake the child up to go to school, like the more poking and prodding, the higher the TSH, the more sluggish that the thyroid is or the more sluggish that child is. So that's just one element of, you know, that thyroid function or getting that child off to school. But then the thyroid has to be able to do its job of producing T4, converting that to T3, um, and the level of TSH in itself is not enough to help us understand how well the thyroid is producing that T4, that that T3. Yeah. Um, I have a great example of somebody uh, it was a thyroid panel just reviewing in clinic last week actually whereby um, this particular client we had been working for a number of months on irregular cycles so she's a female client working on a regular cycle and also working on sluggish bowels so you know we had got her from sort of three bowel movements a week up to four and five on a good week but i was still wanting to see those those bowel motions become more more regular we had assessed her thyroid throughout our our months of working together so late last year her tsh was at 2.12 so a seemingly acceptable tsh level And had she been working purely with a physician on her health, you know, her hormones, her her bowel motions, her energy levels, then the conversation around thyroid would have really stopped there and then. But I persisted and we, we, we managed to get a doctor to do a complete thyroid panel for her. So she didn't have to pay out of pocket. She did get it through her doctor. We did that thyroid panel. We did thyroid antibodies and we, We've, we uncovered that there was definitely dysfunction at the thyroid level. So TSH still sort of looking relatively normal now or in that subclinical range of 2.59, but T4, T3, definitely outside of where we want them to be. So T4, T3, these are the, these are the hormones produced by the thyroid produced by the thyroid Um, we've got t4 which is produced in higher numbers and then we we want to see that t4 being converted to the active thyroid hormone which is t3 and this is another area in which things can go wrong so we may not have enough t3 being produced or converted from t4 and and that will result in sluggishness so in this case we had a t4 of 11 and a t3 of 3.7 Whereas ideally, I would see about a T4 of 15. And tell me if you're looking for any other numbers, Steph, but I'm usually looking for a T4 of 15, a T3 of 5, so we can see about a third of that T4 being converted to the active hormone T3. Yeah, they're great goals to set, obviously. Yeah, very individual, but um, important to acknowledge that the T4 is inactive. So often when I see... um, more than TSH being tested, it's just free T4 and then it's still not giving us enough information. So yes, it's that conversion to free T3 that we absolutely need to see. So your female client that we're discussing had very low conversion. And so yeah, quite a 
a typical symptom is constipation. It could look very different in someone else. It could be, you know, like I mentioned, the hair falling out, the low libido, the fat loss resistance, the lethargy, all of the above. That that life force that free T3 gives us is is everything. So understanding that conversion is so important. Mm-hmm. What are some of those things that could start to impact that conversion of T4 to T3? Because like, what you might often see is that there is adequate T4 but just not enough T3 coming, coming from that. So what are some of the areas that um, we might need to look to if that conversion is impaired? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, look, there's, it's, we'll start with the diet, of course. So Mm. uh, the two like key nutrients that I think are often forgotten about that really help the conversion, one is selenium and two is iodine. So like from a dietary prescription point of view, it's very easy to achieve with the addition of Brazil nuts. And then it might be a good quality iodized salt, or of course your fave seaweed products also excellent Mm. as well. Um, and so just looking at the, the foods that I've mentioned for a lot of people are not foods that they're regularly eating. So maybe, yeah, time to take stock and, and understand if you are getting enough selenium and iodine from your diet to start. Mm. And supplements not necessarily required either. Like those things that you just reeled off, we can get therapeutic dose from those foods. So you don't necessarily need to turn to a supplement straight away if your if that T4, T3 conversion is impacted. Yeah, for sure. And then, of course, there's the whole stress picture. So, you know, we've had a number of specific episodes in the past, Ali, that I'll definitely link to in the show notes. But that stress will really shut down your conversion and impair your thyroid function. Um, and that stress can look like things as simple as too much caffeine for your body. Um, It could be, you know, refined carbohydrates and sugars in excess. These are quite obvious things, but unfortunately in this day and age with everyone being so time poor, it's very tempting. It's very easy to start to drink more coffee or to sneak in sort of, you know, more sugars, for example, especially at certain times of the year. So, you know, the stress could be dietary and of course it could be, you know, external pressures like family and finances and and your boss, for example. Yes. Or running your own business, for example. (laughs) Yeah. Being your own boss. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, stress, stress definitely. And then, uh, you know, something that we talked about time and time and time again on the show, but coming back to the gut as well. So appreciating the influence of gut health on, on the conversion of T4 to T3. So if there's dysbiosis, if there's any sort of increased intestinal permeability, if there's a lack of, of a beneficial, sorry, a lack of bacteria that contribute to health, then they're all areas that need to be addressed as well if we really want to support um, T4 to T3 conversion. Yeah, I think it can definitely be achieved. I mean, getting the data is the first step, clearly, because, yeah, like people that are floating around with the TSH of two and a half, three, three and a half, like they're probably tearing their hair out quite literally as to why they're still so symptomatic. So ask for more, even if you have to pay for it. Like another sort of part of the conversation, like you touched on, Ellie, is there's always this sort of overarching Medicare conversation and 
what can be sort of approved um, and then what out-of-pocket spent expense there is. But, you know, a small out-of-pocket expense I think is really important if your doctor's not going to approve via Medicare, go in there, um, you know, saying that you'll pay for this test if, if required because the data is the first place to start um, and then you can do a really good assessment of your lifestyle as to what's going on. You know, are you not eating enough iodine and selenium? Are there some really obvious stress um, factors that you can start to eliminate? Is there like a history of sort of dietary or caloric restriction, which for a lot of people, they're very familiar, unfortunately, with what is sort of 1,200 calories a day. And this can unfortunately be a huge problem for people who have gotten to the point where they just struggle to lose weight because their only solution up until now is to eat less and move more, which we know doesn't work. And for the thyroid, that completely shuts it down in some cases. Yeah, yeah. yeah. um, We end up yo-yoing and really perpetuating the initial issue. Yeah. And sleep is another form of stress as well that I often look to. So, you know, if you're, sorry, sorry, lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And like, let's think of working mothers as an example, because I see a lot of working mothers in the clinic and I'm sure you do too, but Mm. yeah, (laughs) but you know, they've spent potentially three, five, 10, 12, 18 years being (laughs) semi sleep deprived, um, because they're tending to their children or they're worried about their children when they're older and out at night time and they're working on top of that and sometimes they're training on top of that as well. So what should be a seven and a half hours um, worth night's worth of sleep starts to become a seven or a six and a half or a six hour um, night of sleep. And that is another form of stress, which is just over years going to compound and really start to impact those thyroid hormones. Yeah, like I'm right there with you to those that, that, you know, are living this experience. Like I often think to myself, okay, so Grace is 10 months old. Like this is how I'm feeling on 10 months of, you know, I can probably count on one hand the number of times we've actually slept through to this point in time. Um, And I look after myself and I eat well and I practice my stress management on the mat with yoga and, you know, I do my blood tests and I take, you know, at least um, four or five supplements at the moment, which is sort of more than I normally would. Mm. And then I think, oh, my God, how are the people feeling that don't have all the knowledge or maybe aren't yet getting practitioner support? So it's so important that we, yes, do acknowledge that sleep can really start to reduce your thyroid function and um, never tell a mother to get eight hours sleep because she'll punch you in the mm-hmm. face. But there's a lot mm-hmm. to do. Like myself, I was on my phone until nine o'clock last night and I've only got myself to blame. And so those yeah. sleep strategies that, again, we've discussed before about, you know, what you do in at least the hour before bed, so your digital detox, you know, coming away from blue light, whether that's, you know, removing screens altogether or wearing blue blockers. If you do need to be online, it's looking at your sleep environment. So, you know, Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold. It's eating two to three hours before bed. Like you might not to be not able to be all of these things. You might not able to be, you know, ticking all the boxes when you've got a little human to keep alive. But the question is, what can you do to look at your sleep hygiene and get as much as is reasonable right now? 
Mm, yeah, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's not not necessarily possible. Mm. But because the important thing to think of is that you know supplements could potentially bring you out of a hole. So you know if you weren't going to have the Brazil nuts and you weren't going to have your seaweed products and you still needed those nutrients to support your thyroid function, then yes, you know you could look to supplements to bring you out of a hole. But what about long term? If you haven't addressed the underlying like sources of stress, lack of sleep, um, perception of stress, if you haven't addressed all of that, then you're not going to get yourself out of the hole for the long term. And um, you know, for both you and I, like that long term health, that that long term feeling of wellness is really what we're working towards. I'm not just here to to pull someone out and then leave them to their own devices. Like our clients need to understand how they're going to support their health for the long term. And supplements aren't necessarily a long-term solution. I don't think they need to be in an ideal world. And that's another reason why we test because, you know, you might need something in the short term while you're addressing some underlying issues. If it is dysbiosis or if it is purely, you know, some of those mental, emotional, or even physical stresses that um, are more, time related like i hope one day that you know maybe when grace is a couple months older we'll start to string together um a few more full nights so you know that changes what you require and you know it will certainly apply differently but probably similarly in everyone else's um individual situation dependent on what stresses they've got going on another thing that comes to mind when we think about the thyroid of course is any inflammation so blood mm. tests that we would look like uh, that we would look at rather is you know C-reactive protein maybe ESR that could indicate some early inflammation, um, and it, you know it's non-specific but it can cause systemic inflammation which can definitely damage the thyroid. So mm. understanding that, and then of course in that vein is um, inflammation of the gut, like you mentioned, if it's dysbiosis. Um, any infections are also going to be inflammatory in nature, which can then sort of lead to the gut causing the inflammation and then both of the above impacting the thyroid. So packing some of that. um, And like with your client, you know, you guys did have to put your detective hats on and have a a closer look at what was going on because of that, that symptom that you hadn't yet resolved with some amazing foundations that are, of course, very helpful to have implemented. Yeah, and for most people would shift the needle, which is why which is why we had to do that extra sort of detective work. But talking of the gut and talking about inflammation and talking of what else we uncovered in the testing, um, we need to we need to look at thyroid antibodies. Oh, yeah. So or thyroid autoantibodies. So looking at um, thyroglobulin antibodies and thyroid peroxidase antibodies. These were tests that we had done in this particular scenario. And as much as possible, if you're going to get a thyroid panel done, then try and get those thyroid autoantibodies done at the same time as well. You know, hopefully we won't see any sort of autoimmune activity being picked up in these test results, but it's always nice to be able to rule it out. Uh, and, you know, education is key or info is key. So when we're looking at the thyroid autoantibodies, it is suggestive of a level of autoimmune activity against the cells of the thyroid. Sometimes of other, other sort of, I guess, autoimmune conditions, but also cells of the thyroid. 
So in this particular case, we had thyroglobulin antibody levels, which looked somewhat normal, but thyroid peroxidase antibody or antibody levels, which were incredibly high um, and suggestive, you know, pointing towards an autoimmune condition. And there's like this scale, right, of if you're looking at autoantibodies, um, you know, there might be some autoimmune activity against the thyroid, you know, before you get to that point of autoimmunity. Um, and that's why it is also nice to test these antibodies so that you can pick up and detect any sort of a more autoimmune activity before you get to a diagnosable autoimmune condition. Oh my God. So true. And this isn't real issue again with the, on the TSH being tested, right? Because then antibodies aren't looked at for months or years. And then unfortunately for a lot of people, um, they end up with a diagnosis, diagnosis like Hashimoto's or Graves and it's, it's medication for a very long time, if not forever. Whereas when you can get catch this early, you can put it into remission. So it's only this week that I got asked the question, you know, um, is Hashimoto's reversible? Now it all depends on where you're at and how long it's been and that full picture again. But certainly if you catch raised thyroid antibodies early, then absolutely you can get those back down to almost non-existent, like, you know, less than five or less than four. and um, then as long as you maintain what you did to achieve that, then you'll never have an autoimmune disease or at least of the thyroid in this conversation. So like, yes, getting that testing early again. Um, It's so key. And then obviously I'm sure you're going to talk about gluten, so go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of us had to start talking about gluten in this case. But, yeah, for sure because, you know, gluten is sort of like that thing that, that unlocks the key to autoimmunity, right? Like, so we know that gluten, that, that wheat protein um, is going to increase the production of zonulin um, in the, the cell, the lining of the gut and zonulin is what imp- in, you know, impacts the, the permeability of the gut. So we've got increased zonulin, we've got increased intestinal permeability, which means we've basically got this two-way system whereby we can we can lose nutrients from the blood, but we can also see things like bacteria, pathogens, um, undigested proteins making their way from the gut into the bloodstream. And that's when our immune system is like, hold on a second, I'm not used to seeing these things in the blood, so I'm going to sort of initiate a response against these foreign bodies and it sets the immune system off. So um, it can start to become dysfunctional and start to attack attack its own cells or our own cells. So gluten for, let's look at autoimmune conditions in general, gluten is that, 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 one little, that one little protein that I would really look to remove if you've got a predisposition to autoimmunity or if you're starting to see signs of autoimmunity. But when it comes to the thyroid in particular, it's super key to look at eliminating gluten. Um, because there's some evidence to suggest that the the cells of the thyroid can be confused for gluten by the immune system. Um, And so gluten's further going to get in the way of um, immune activity against the thyroid. So any sort of um, thyroid autoantibodies looking slightly raised on the test results, 
uh, if you're working with me, would mean that gluten is completely eliminated from the diet at least until you start to see those autoantibody numbers start to come down. Yeah, for sure. It's that case of cellular mimicry that we've really got to acknowledge that the gliadin, yeah, looks a lot like the thyroid. So the body can get very confused and essentially start to attack itself. So that's definitely something that I think is quite easily resolved because we don't talk about, you know, what we're sort of taking out per se, it's what we're eating. So, you know, if you're eating a plant-based or a whole food or a jerf or whatever you call it, a real food, like template, that's your lifestyle, then you're going to be, you know, 99% gluten-free anyway. You just need to be careful of any of the sneaky ways it it appears. So, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the way I think we really need to focus on what we're eating from that nutrient density lens rather than, oh, it's a disaster that I've got to cut out gluten and and lack. Yeah, and you're right because there's so much that we can eat outside of gluten and for anybody that hasn't spent like 10 minutes at the naturalnutritionist.com.au, you will see that there is an abundance of recipes, all gluten-free, all super easy to make, all yummy, family-friendly recipes that really if if you're familiar with your kitchen and familiar with some kitchen utensils, then it means that gluten-free eating is is not difficult. And if anything, you should be super stoked that at least there is something you can do from a dietary perspective. It doesn't cost any money to support um, autoimmunity against the thyroid. Yeah, for sure. And while we're on the topic of like, you know, what we need to be mindful of, I I do think we have to look at refined sugar, of course, because there's this beautiful sort of gut healing focus that we need to put in to support any signs of, you know, antibodies or future autoimmunity. And we just have to acknowledge that putting triggers in day on day or at 3.30 every day is just going to really cause you to spin your wheels. So, you know, might you might be taking one step forwards, but then the sugar will put you back again. And of course, then you'll be only frustrated that you're not progressing and, and getting results. So, um, you, you all probably know of I Quit Sugar or, or Sarah Wilson's mm. journey and, and that actually started from exploring or part of it is um, exploring her thyroid health and, and quitting sugar was a big part of that because um, sugar is not only inflammatory but insulin spikes, those constant or that constant blood sugar dysregulation really does start to destroy the thyroid gland. So, um, you know, looking at what might be in the diet too frequently that is that constant trigger is you know probably even more important that you start with that and then of course looking at how you can eat or consume more iodine and selenium via food as well yeah and look sarah wilson was also a huge proponent for things like bone broth like i think she was probably one of the first to um start talking about bone broth in in a more mainstream fashion but we know that bone broth like if you're comfortable with having animal products is a great source of that um that glutamine which is really going to help with with sealing up the gut and helping to get rid of some of that increased intestinal permeability which will leave you sort of open to the overworked overworked immune system so yeah quitting sugar but also introducing some of those whole food products which can really support with healing the gut regaining some integrity Oh, absolutely. So important. And like everyone needs to be working on their, on their gut. And I think absolutely making bone broth a priority or a, you know, a plant-based alternative, of course, if that's your dietary preference, 
Um, but yeah, when we're looking at the thyroid specifically, like we're talking about for our athletes today, um, broth has that excellent recovery. You know, we're always after what's the latest and greatest we can do for recovery. And, you know, people are buying their glutamine powders and their branch chain amino acids or whatever it might be. Whereas broth is that beautiful balance for our recovery nutrients. And we can only increase in performance if we optimize recovery, right? So looking at bone broth as a beautiful supplement to your training is, yeah, is where it's at, if you ask me. Mm. So how might some of our athletes, you know, preparing for their season, you know, what are some of the warning signs or the flags that they need to get their thyroid assessed? You know, would you just put it as part of that like standard um, blood test assessment that you get done when you, you know, start working with your nutritionist or you start embarking on your season or are there some particular warning signs that you think athletes should perhaps be attuned to? When it comes um, to the thyroid. Yeah, I mean, historically, I tend to work with athletes who have come out of the one, the very, you know, high carbohydrate, Gatorade, Gatorade driven um, past, as well as an overtraining model, because certainly triathletes, at least, um, you know, for a very long time, it was more is more. There was no MAF aerobic low intensity it was all just let's absolutely flog ourselves so Mm. a lot of my clients um, are coming out of that space so of course we would need to explore what that past or impact that past has had on the thyroid and you know me I shoot for the stars so the list that I give my clients to Mm. aim to have tested is always you know, is almost always more than we actually get to start. But at least we have a starting point. And for many people, it's just um, more fa- financially viable for them to get whatever is approved for that um, Medicare sort of no additional expense to start. And I'm very happy to start there. We've discussed this before. But of course, like not dissimilar to your case study, Ali, where you had ticked all the boxes, but there was still something not quite right. I'm really passionate about continuing the exploration because luckily, you know, this client was already working with us, but I have a conversation nearly every day with someone who's been told they're fine by blood tests. And I get on my bloody soapbox about this because the reference ranges, again, aren't often talking about feeling optimal. It's excluding a disease, of course, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm totally on a tangent here. I realize I'll answer your question, <laughs> you know, understanding, all right, let, let's get this information. So as we said earlier, if, if the conversation with your practitioner is, yeah, let's, we've got to explore the thyroid more than just TSH, we can talk to you about what that might cost from an out-of-pocket expense. Um, and it's not going to be anywhere near in the vein of sort of gut testing or anything to start with. But no. yeah, I, I also don't want people feeling like they have to end up with this huge out-of-pocket expense. So there's going to be that compromise and prioritization when it comes to testing as always. Mm. I sort of got caught on something that you said a little bit earlier about, but, you know, being on your soapbox and wanting to investigate until you get to the root cause of the problem. And that's why it's so lovely in these sort of more holistic modalities that we have the opportunity to talk with our clients, you know, for 50 minutes, half an hour to, to understand what's going on with them. But, you know, when you're looking at a Western model where you've got 10 minutes and some blood tests to review, then you don't necessarily have the opportunity to, to, um, 
to link the numbers with the client profile. Does that make sense? Often you're just looking at the numbers and that's what your that's what the decision is being made on as to whether like this particular marker is an influence on health yeah. or not. But when you get that conversation piece, that case history on top of the numbers, well that's when we can really start to um to understand what's going on. Yeah, and you know, Ellie, I'm always like, so what are the symptoms? So we're not we're not interpreting a piece of paper. And so throughout the series, like we have given some numbers and some reference ranges, but more for context and, and mm. you know, to explain how it looks in that sort of Western versus, you know, more holistic modalities. Um, but yeah, it's about the symptom picture and having time to explore that with your client is excellent. But also acknowledging like, who are you seeing? Like if you're seeing a Western trained GP, like they're not nutritionists, all due respect. They're very well educated, extremely intelligent. And, you know, almost all of them have everyone's best interest in heart at heart. Don't get me wrong, but they're trained in pharmaceuticals. Like that's what a medicine degree is outside of specialities, right? So, you know, I had a recent experience where I went to get bloods, like as another sort of postnatal checkup. And, um, I won't go into the detail, but essentially I left with some suggestions around pharmaceuticals. (laughs) And um, of course, that's not what I was looking for. I I really wanted the results. So I I got what I was there for, but it was a good lesson for me as someone who rarely goes to the GP, what our clients are, are facing often and, you know, why we do what we do because we're not trained in pharmaceuticals. Yes, we factor in contraindications and we look at what our clients are taking, pharmaceutical and, um, you know, natural supplements. But at the end of the day, of course, we're going to be suggesting diet and lifestyle because that's what we do. We're nutritionists, you know. So you got to keep in mind who you're taking these results to and manage your expectations as to what the recommendations are going to be. Yeah, yeah. And look, diet and lifestyle may not always be on paper the simplest option when you it's compare not sexy it to either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, certainly um, not as profitable as the pharmaceutical companies are. Oh, um, you did not go then. <laughs> <laughs> but diet and lifestyle is the long term solution. Yeah. So, like, I always think of, especially when it comes to like chronic illness and lifestyle related conditions, like if you've got one pharmaceutical to treat one issue, let's use, like, let's go, go steer away from the thyroid here and look at blood pressure. For an example, if you go on blood pressure medication, like, yes, it's going to fill that gap in the, in the bucket, but there are going to be other holes that start forming in the bucket and the pressure is just going to go to those holes and you're going to start getting, um, you know, high cholesterol levels or thyroid dysfunction or adrenal dysfunction um, because you've not taken care of what was the underlying cause of high blood pressure in this example. So pharmaceuticals, yeah, they may fill that one gap, that one hole, but it's not long-term and it's not going to mean that you're not predisposed to other conditions caused by the same risk factors. Yeah, totally. And then the flow and effect of like prescription on top of prescription, which we often see. And, um, you know, I have this goal I probably haven't shared out loud before, but I want to be in my 80s and 90s and hopefully 100s medication free. And I see this in some of my clients now, like especially some that I've been working with for a long time who might be in their 70s, like their friends are like, 
full on pill popping. They've got their pill boxes with their Monday, their Tuesday, their Wednesday, etc. And my clients might be taking a little bit of D or a little bit of CoQ10 or, you know, depending on the whole picture, of course. My point is, is like, let's get the foundations and look at how we're living and how we're eating. And then we can avoid in almost many cases, um, we can avoid pharmaceutical intervention. Of course, there is a time and a place, like if you have to be on thyroxin, if you've had your thyroid removed 20 years ago, that's the exception to the rule. But, yeah. you know, it shouldn't be our first point of call and we do have to acknowledge um, that, yeah, it often, as you say, puts a lot of other holes in the proverbial bucket. Yeah. Well, I support you in that goal, Steph. I want to be mm. 80 with you sitting on some sort of, outdoor recliner in like Byron Bay sipping on a kombucha. Yes, wifey. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Life goals. (laughs) Absolutely. So good. I've actually, you know, I feel like we've covered a lot in this episode and this mini series has been incredible. Um, But as always, guys, like don't do it on your own. If you want to chat with myself or Ellie about, you know, blood testing or even a bit of a conversation around what tests might be best for you, head to the show notes and I'll pop a link in there about a complimentary 15-minute consult. So that's done virtually or you can come into the clinic if you're local to Sandringham. We would love to chat to you and help you prepare for your season and beyond. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.